Hey, welcome guys. Um, I sent the Quizlet link um, to everyone's um, um, remind. Okay, um, so let's get started. So order of GI assessment, we are always going to start with least invasive to most invasive. So you're gonna start with inspection um, and then you're gonna move on to auscultation percussion and then light palpation and then deep palpation remember never to um palpate directly over um a known mass or um a surgical wound um and try to leave um if the patient's already complaining of somewhere where there's pain we're going to try to avoid um that area and leave that one for last that way we are able to complete the assessment without the patient um kind of guarding and then the assessment won't be correct okay gastritis so we're looking at itis which is inflammation and gastric um, which is stomach so gastritis is the inflammation um of the gastric mucosa of the stomach Okay, and we talked about it being um, sometimes it could be um, acute where it's like short lived. We treat the symptoms, we treat the cause and it goes away. Um, but sometimes there is a chronic um, condition that does need to be addressed in order to prevent complications. And the complications from acute gastritis um, include um, a GI bleed. Okay, so remember if there's a constant irritation, there's always a chance that there um, could be some ulcer formation or a GI bleed. Um, oh, hold on. Um, um, and the GI bleed is called hematoemesis. Okay, so hematoemesis is blood and emesis. And then as far as chronic gastritis, so these are your long-term, so you have a patient who has chronic gastritis that's going on um, that may or may not be properly treated. Maybe they take their medication sometimes. Maybe, um, you know, they don't take it repeatedly. So they have, sometimes they become asymptomatic. So they're not going to have that burning pain that's going to tell them there's something wrong. Um, and those include um, damage to the intrinsic factors, so the damage to the lining of the stomach. So um, patients that have chronic um, gastritis um, could have vitamin B12 deficiency just because of the loss of that intrinsic factor. Okay, so the goal of the treatment for gastritis is obviously to identify what is causing it in order to stop that constant exacerbation of it. So eliminate the cause and prevent future episodes. So we don't want a patient to have to necessarily be on medications forever. Um, so hopefully we're able to identify the cause. We're able to help the patient um, stop that constant irritation from, you know, it could be diet, it could be, um, you know, exercise. It could be the fact that they may lay, you know, eat late and lay down, um, stuff like that. Okay. Now, GERD, we said there's a chronic inflammation, um, not just of the stomach, but it can um, it travels up to the esophagus. Okay. And our complications may be respiratory because of that acidity that's going into the stomach. Patients may have more asthma symptoms. They may have coughs or throat, hoarseness. And then you have your esophagitis, which is a chronic inflammation of the esophagus. And with the chronic inflammation of the esophagus, then we're also um, 
there's also a possibility of the patient developing Barrett's esophagus. So Barrett's esophagus, we said, is just dysplasic um, cells that form in that constantly irritated um, esophagus. Okay? So those patients do need to be monitored and treated because there's always a potential for those cells to become cancerous. Okay, purpose of a PPI, just like the name says, protein pump inhibitors. So they inhibit this protein pump and the protein pump, what it does, it um, produces acid, um, the acid of the stomach. Okay, so the whole purpose of them is to decrease acid production. Your protein pump inhibitors are all those that end in zoles, your omeprazole, pantoprazole, exomeprazole, all of those. Okay, so all of them then in Zol, those are your protein pump inhibitors, and they are to decrease the acid production. Okay, then you have your H2 receptors, and the H stands for histamine. Um, so those will be blocking, so they're antagonists, so they're blocking that histamine release of the stomach. Um, and those we also use whenever there's... Um, Sometimes allergic reactions, we use them co um, along with um, Benadryl and stuff like that. But, you know, they primarily work on those histamine receptors of the stomach. Examples of those are all the deans. So, semetidine, renatidine, famotidine, and acetatidine. Okay. So, then we move on to cytoprotective. So, it tells you right there, protective. So, it's forming a protective layer um, of the, um, of the stomach lining. Okay. So it forms a protective layer or barrier. So because it has to form a protective layer around the stomach, then it's very important that we give it how. How would we have to give those cytoprotective, um, anybody? Okay, so we would have to give them on an empty stomach, okay? Because in order for it to completely um, cover um, the entire lining of the stomach, there has to be nothing that would attach to the medication, okay? So these cytoprotective drugs will be given first thing in the morning before um, any food or um, drink ingestion, and those will be like your bismuth, um, which is your peptobismol, or your sucralfate, which is your um, your carafate. Okay, so first thing in the morning on an empty stomach because they have to form that protective layer. Um, hey, so the PPI drugs, which are your protein pump inhibitors, because they're constantly inhibiting the production of acidity. Um, then we know that they're decreasing that acid production, and that acid production is what protects um, from bacteria being able to um, pass through the stomach. So those patients that are on increase, um, uh, that are on constantly, um, I oh my god, I'm sorry. They're constantly in PPI have a higher risk of C. diff because now that bacteria won't be killed off by the stomach acid and it can surpass that and go through. 
Hey, the purpose of our stomach acid is to protect. It's like one of those protective barriers. It kills off bacteria that may have come in through food or that might have been ingested. Um, and that acidity um, and that acid environment doesn't allow the bacteria to grow. So anytime we have any change in acidity of the stomach, um, then we're potentially um, also allowing that bacteria to go through. Okay. So in addition to medications that we give patients that have gastritis or GERD, whether it's acute or chronic, there are also lifestyle changes that we need to encourage those patients to have in order to help those medications work and prevent um, some of those symptoms. So some of those interventions is we're going to make um, the patients, we're going to educate them on eating small, frequent meals. We don't want them to get over full because that over fullness, we said that sphincter is just going to allow the acidity come up. Um, patients need to elevate their head of the bed after meals or stay sitting up and avoid eating right before bed. You don't want to eat, be on a full stomach, lay down because all of that is going to come up. Lying on the right side um, in order to help prevent the reflux of the acid just because of the anatomy of the stomach. That's by gravity. Um, laying on the right side is going to make things go down into the intestines versus going up the esophagus. And then avoiding any irritants such as smoking, alcohol, tobacco, and anything that's fatty fried because um, all those are going to increase the production of acid in the stomach. Okay, the most common cause of peptic ulcer disease. So these are the peptic ulcer disease encompasses the gastric ulcers, so the ones in the stomach, and the duodenal ulcers, which are in that first part of the small intestine of the duodenum. But the most common causes is either H. pylori, which is um, a bacteria that just takes over, or chronic NSAID use. Okay, so um, the majority of peptic ulcer disease um, ulcers are due to these two main things. Okay, and anytime we have an ulcer formation that's going through layers of, of the tissue, potential complications are perforation. So there could be a complete perforation, which could cause an infection, an abscess, etc. There's always a chance for GI bleed because it's going through the vessels and causing that frank red blood. Or if it's small enough, um, it could be um, show as a coat blood in the stool. And then with any chronic irritation, like we talked about Barrett's esophagus, there's a chance that there could be some cancerous cells that can form because now the, the cells become abnormal. GI bleeding, um, the formal term is hematoemesis. So hema is blood, emesis is vomiting. Okay. So inflammatory bowel disease or IBD is made up of two conditions and they both, their main um, factor that joins them is the fact that they're both inflammatory process. It's just that both have different levels of inflammation. So with IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, you have your ulcerative colitis and you have your Crohn's disease. So they both um, are characterized by periods of flare-ups and periods of exacerbation. And during the time that the patients are having flare-ups, this is inflammation of um, the intestines. Okay, episodes of remissions and exacerbations. And our goal for patients is to hopefully um, keep them in those remission episodes. And when they are in exacerbations, when they're having that flare-up, we want them to um, have the least... <laughs> it's okay. Um, 
we want them to have the least amount of complications. Okay, so during that time that they're having the flare-ups, we want to make sure that they're um, stable um, and that we're treating any possibility of complications that may occur. So during that exacerbation, you have patients that may be coming in. And um, one main factor that both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's has is that the patients will have recurrent um, diarrhea. They were talking about like multiple um, episodes in a day. So whenever we're having multiple episodes of diarrhea, we're losing electrolytes, we're losing um, fluids, and the patients may not be able to compensate. So our main goal whenever we have somebody who has um, IBD um, when they come into the hospital is to make sure that they are hemodynamically stable. That's going to be our priority in that ABC order um, because of that repeated diarrhea. So we're going to be monitoring um, potassium levels and sodium levels, and we may have to replace them. Okay, our goal, like we said, we want them to have the fewer amount and less severe exacerbations because every time that they have a flare-up and exacerbation, they have damage um, to the intestinal wall. In order for them to stay um, hemodynamically stable, making sure that their electrolytes are always in balance, um, that they're as free as possible of pain and discomfort, that they're sticking to their medication regimens, um, that they're taking their daily meds in order to help prevent that inflammatory process, that they're able to keep a nutritional balance. Some of these patients, um, because of the chronic damage, they will have some um, malabsorption, so they won't be able to absorb their nutrients um, the way that they should be. So we want to make sure that we're providing them with alternatives um, to help that nutritional balance and obviously improve their quality of life. Like we said, it affects... Um, a huge part of their life, whether um, they may have a stoma or just a chronic diarrhea episodes that interfere with their regular activities. Now with diverticula, so we said diverticula happens most commonly in the descending colon. So we're, um, we're thinking pain will be on that left lower quadrant and risk for developing these little pockets um, in the intestinal wall, we said would be um, any constipation because of that straining it's causing um, those little pockets to form along the layers so with constipation these patients usually have low fiber diets um, they tend to be obese um, have inactivity or sedentary lifestyles um, and all those um, are contributing to that constipation other factors may be smoking alcohol and said use um, an increased intra-abdominal pressure. So anytime that there's like a force to go in, um, it causes that weakness along the wall. So signs and symptoms of diverticulitis. So diverticulitis is the actual inflammation of those little pockets. So it's in that acute phase. Most often patients left lower quadrant pain because we said it goes down in the colon. Um, distension, um, they may have decreased um, or absent bowel sounds, depending if they have an obstruction that's going with it or an infection. And then they um, may complain of nausea and vomiting. Elderly don't usually complain of these things. Um, they may just have maybe like a diffuse, like mild um, pain in their abdomen, but it may not be as pronounced. So because we said one of the risk factors of diverticulitis is constipation, then ways to prevent it is to prevent um, 
the patients from having constipation. So increasing physical activity, making sure they're getting enough fiber, that they're um, drinking enough fluids, um, that they're avoiding uh, fats and red meats, and avoiding that increased abdominal um, pressure. So that's straining, which may cause those pockets in those weak areas, um, vomiting, heavy lifting, wearing tight-fitting clothing, or um, bending. Okay, patients with C. diff, um, we said Glosterium difficile. Um, it is um, a bacteria that um, takes over um, and they need contact precautions. Those spores can live up to 20 days on surfaces. So we need to make sure that we are following contact precautions in order to one, prevent us from acquiring or spreading it to other patients that we may see. Um, and if the patient is being treated at home, then we want to make sure that they have proper hygiene and disinfection um, in order to prevent it from um, spreading throughout a family, through a house, um, because it is highly contagious. So we said that sometimes um, when there's issues with the bowel, if they have to do surgery, um, they may not be able to reattach the intestines right away. So then we would have... Um, formation of stomas sometimes they may be permanent sometimes they could be temporary but those stomas remember the picture that we saw they need to be pink and moist that means that the um, tissue is um, um, getting enough blood flow um, if we see it that it's dark um, or dry looking that it could be that it's necrotic and that we would need to call a provider right away when we're talking about NG2s, we said nasogastric tubes um, could be used for different purposes um, depending on what the patient needs. So decompression, anytime you have a patient that may have some sort of obstruction, um, it would need to decompress to allow to um, hopefully release that obstruction. So if you ever see um, a patient with some sort of um, intestinal obstruction and they have an ng tube then the purpose of that ng tube is to decompress and allow the bowels to rest sometimes a patient may need assistance with eating whether it's because they're having um surgery in their mouth or they may be unable to swallow um or they may need supplemental um feeds that they may not be acquiring so then you may have an ng tube for those enteral feedings um, compression, if there is like a bleed, sometimes they may put in a G tube in order to help com um, compress those areas that are bleeding and hopefully stop them. And then with the lavages would be somebody who had um, an ingestion of some sort where they need their stomach to be cleared out. Confirmation of placement of NG tubes. Okay, so when we put it in um, an NG tube, we're going to measure prior to doing it. But the confirmation to know exactly that it is in the stomach um, in the correct place would be a chest x-ray. Oh. Can you see it? Oh, okay. Yeah, no, you guys don't need to see me. <laughs> okay. Um, so, hold on. Let me go back to it. Okay, so confirmation of placement of NG tube always has to be um, chest x-ray. 
okay? But we're not going to do a chest x-ray prior to every feed and every medication administration because obviously it's not feasible to do an x-ray uh, on a patient each time. But that initial confirmation does have to be via x-ray. Um, if we're giving enteral feeds with the NG tube, um, those have to be less than four weeks. Okay, so if a patient is going to need long-term feeds for more than those four weeks, then they would need something more permanent, such as a gastrostomy, a jejunostomy, or a PEG tube. Um, NG tubes are only to be used for short-term use. So when we're checking um, GI contents prior to um, giving a feed or a medication, um, we're going to aspirate some of those GI contents and we're going to check for the pH. And because the stomach um, is an acidic, we need to, um, those gastric contents should be less than four. Okay, so they should be acidic that they would determine that um, we are in the stomach. Um, so if it's anything more than four, then we may be further into the esophagus. We may not be right at the stomach and then we would have to check placement for that. Okay, so if you're starting an end, uh, feed via an NG tube, um, the patient should always be elevated 30 to 45 degrees in order to prevent aspiration. Whether the patient is unconscious or has decreased level of consciousness, um, we would still need to elevate that head of the bed, but more so if the patient is unable to tell us um, that they're going to throw up or um, because they have a decreased mental status. Okay, so very important, elevate 30 to 45 degrees to hopefully prevent your patient from aspirating. Okay, so... When we're checking patency of those NG tubes, whether it's um, before a feed, before medication, or um, when we're flushing after a feed or after medication, we need to use um, a 30 ml of water. Okay, that way we make sure um, that everything went in, that nothing stayed in the tube, um, and prior to a feed, that the tube is still okay and patent and it's not clogged. Complications from NG tubes. Um, Obviously, the patient could aspirate if they throw up. Um, they may have diarrhea if they're not tolerating the end of the feed. Um, and there could be some overfeeding because the patient's not chewing. Um, they may not have the same response of knowing that they are full. Okay, so that's why we would check for um, for residual um, volume. Okay. So gastric ulcers. Sorry, it jumps back to ulcers. So signs and symptoms of gastric ulcers. So those are the ones in the stomach. So patients would have leftover quadrant pain because it would be at that curve of the stomach. Um, and usually right after they eat. So about 30 to 60 minutes after eating, they will start complaining of the pain. While duodenal ulcers, which are into that first part of the intestine. Right. Um, patients would have right upper quadrant pain and it's going to be a little bit delayed because it's going to have to take time for it to be digested in the stomach and follow into the intestines. So pain would usually start about one and a half to three hours after eating. So gastric ulcers, the pain would be right away. Duodenal ulcers would be a little bit more delayed. Now with diabetes, your signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia, remember the um 
cold and clammy, need some candy. Um, the patient may have shakiness. They may be diaphoretic. They may be anxious, nervous. Um, they may have chills along that diaphoresis. Um, they may complain of nausea, headache, weakness. Um, and if it gets um, low enough, then the patients may have confusion um, and they may even um, pass out. Now, hyperglycemia, which is high blood sugar, the patient will be hot and dry, um, sugar high. Okay, so the patients would have obviously an elevated blood glucose. They may be complaining that they're thirsty. They may be going to the bathroom more often. They may be hungry. Um, they may be flushed. Their skin may be hot and um, and flushed. Um, but as it progresses, then the patient may have weakness, malaise. Um, they'll get tachycardic. Um, their blood pressure may go down and they'll be breathing um, fast. Okay, lab values for diagnosing of diabetes. Um, these, it's important to know A1C um, 6.5 or higher is considered um, the patient to be diabetic as long as it's confirmed twice. Um, and our goal is to keep those patients that are diabetic below a 7 um, A1C. Okay, so 6.5 and higher is considered diabetic, but once we have treatment on the diabetic patient, we want to keep them under 7. Fasting plasma glucose, so that first thing in the morning on an empty stomach, we want it to be less than 126. So anything that's over 126 on more than one occasion could be um, confirmed with um, to be diabetic. With your two-hour um, plasma glucose, anything over 200, or the patient has any of these plus your classic hyperglycemic um, symptoms such as uh, polydipsia, polyuria, polyphagia, or if they're in some sort of hyperglycemic crisis. So the goal of diabetes treatment and management is to reduce symptoms and prevent complications. So we want patients to have their blood glucose controlled, um, and that is going to be the best way in order to help reduce and hopefully prevent those long-term complications to um, body parts, such as neuropathy, which is um, to the nerves, which um, most often patients complain of their hands and feet, but it can occur in any other body part. Your nephropathy, which is um, complications to the kidneys where they no longer are able to um, filter out um, and it's one of the causes of end-stage renal disease and retinopathy which is those microaneurysms and bleeds that occur um, in the retina which is the leading cause of adult blindness. The only insulin that can be given IV in those emergency situations where you need to give a medication right away to help bring down that blood sugar will be regular insulin, okay? So regular insulin is the only one that can be given um, as a bolus IV. Hey, the number one reason, we said DKA, um, which is diabetic ketoacidosis, occurs most often in type 1 diabetics and HHNS Um occurs mostly in type 2 diabetics, but the number one reason for both things is dehydration and usually during those periods of illness, okay? So those patients get dehydrated and then they're unable to compensate. When we're mixing insulins, there's only two that you can mix them together, okay? And that is your regular, which is your clear, and then your MPH, which is your cloudy. Remember, those are the only two that can be mixed together. Okay, clear before cloudy. Okay, 
Um, insulin um, is a high. Um, it's a high chance of um, complications medication, so it's a critical med. So it does require for two nurses to verify prior to giving it. So prior to giving a medication, you need to verify with another nurse to make sure you're giving the correct number of units based on the order um, that is provided for that patient. Okay, so prior to insulin administration, so even if you have um, orders to be giving medication um, at a certain intervals, prior to uh, giving that medication, you need to check the blood glucose level. So we need to ensure that the patient is in fact um, okay to receive that insulin. Um, if we have a patient who may be hypoglycemic, then we need to um, notify the provider or if we're going to skip a dose because um, we're not just going to give it um, and then potentially the patient become extremely hypoglycemic. Okay, so prior, we're always going to check blood glucose levels first. Okay, injection sites for insulin, we need to make sure that they're rotating them um, in order to prevent from that um, atrophy of the skin to form, which forms like that little scar tissue along the fatty um, part. Um, and the fact that they're rotating the sites is also going to increase absorption. The area of the body that um, absorbs the best is the abdomen. Um, you can use the arm, the thigh, um, but the one that um, absorbs the best would be in the abdominal around umbilicus. Okay, diabetic patients with neuropathy, um, because they're having issues with sensation, um, they may not feel or they may have decreased sensation. Um, we have to make sure that we are educating them to check their feet every day to prevent injuries to the feet just because there's areas that they may not see, um, especially the soles of the feet or in between the toes where they may have um, either like a fungal infection or maybe they hurt themselves um, and they don't realize that it's occurring. And by the time that they realize it, um, it could be already like a severe infection or maybe it could be um, necrotic or something like that. Um, so in order to catch injuries early um, and treat them, um, any potential infection, we want them to be checking um, daily especially that bottom of their feet and in between your toes. If they do have more um, invasive procedures to get done, such as corn and calluses, where it just has to go further into the layers of the skin, we want to make sure that they're going to a professional um, that knows how to remove these um, to prevent any injuries and any potential complications from an infection. As far as regular eye exams, we're going to be... Um, educating diabetic patients they need um, a yearly eye exam and that's hopefully to be able to catch um, any potential issues of retinopathy before they become um, too advanced that would cause blindness um, in the patient okay so minimum of at least once a year they should be getting their eyes checked okay when you open your insulin so as long as the insulin vial is closed, it um, gets stored in the refrigerator. But once you pop open the vial, um, it is only good for 30 days and you can keep it at room temperature. But once the 30 days have passed, um, you need to dump it out. 
hey, patients coming in diabetic ketoacidosis or HHNS um, require, because we said that the number one cause of both of these conditions is dehydration of the patient, then we would have to immediately start IV fluids. The fluid that usually gets started with these patients is um, 0.9% normal saline, um, which is isotonic, and that's um, to replace those fluids that they're losing. If you have a patient who's hypoglycemic, so their blood sugar is low, um, and they're conscious, so they're still awake, um, they're still able to um, swallow and talk to you, then we're going to give them 50 to 20 carbs, uh, grams um, of carbs. Um, so we said um, like orange juice, those over-the-counter oral glucose tablets, graham crackers, um, some hard candies, um some skim milk um those things we would give them and then we would recheck their blood glucose again in 15 minutes so hypoglycemia if they're conscious we're going to give 15 to 20 grams of carbs and then we're going to recheck that blood glucose in 15 minutes okay now um that's it i think for this one any questions Yes. It's on the border. Um, we want. We would like to see it at that four level because we definitely know we're like in the stomach and we're not closer to the um, top area. Um, but just know that it definitely has to be acidic. Um, so usually you check with those little pH strips. Um, I don't know um, if they've shown them to you in skills lab. Um, and it checks for pH. It turns, um, I believe, purple um, if it's... Um, alkalotic like if it's um too basic um and it turns i believe orange if it's acidic um so depending on the manufacturer it'll give you the range of where it would be acidic and where it would be um uh, basic okay um okay so let me um let me see if there was something else. Any other questions? Okay. Um, as far as sick days are concerned for your diabetic patients, remember when patients, um, there is a slide um, that we went over in class about sick days um, with your diabetic patients. So during that time, they need to have closer monitoring of their um blood glucose. Hey, let me go ahead and share this screen with you guys. Hold on. Okay. Um... Okay, 
So it's slide number 30 in your diabetic um, presentation. Okay, so treatment of patients that have sick days because you're induced sick days. Um, we said dehydration or an illness, it's usually what's going to throw your diabetic patient into complications such as DKA um, or HHNS. So during those times where they may have an illness, Hey guys, so with diabetes, make sure you do know the, um, what to do um, for those sick days. Okay, In the PowerPoint of um, diabetes, it would be um, slide number 30 because um, we said DKA or HHNS. Um, they're both um, the main causes are dehydration and illness. Okay, so during those times that the patient may be sick, they need to be monitoring their glucose every three to four hours. Um, normally, they would only check it once a day, or that's what we would encourage them. But when they're sick, they need to check at least every three to four hours in order to make sure that they are keeping a close eye on those levels. They are going to continue their diabetic regimen medications. Um, in order to stay hydrated, we want to encourage them to take about four ounces of sugar-free um, non-caffeinated um, beverages every 30 minutes in order to stay hydrated um, and then try to have um, like small soft small meals soft foods liquids um, often about six to eight times a day in order to keep up with those carb requirements that the body needs and then they need to be checking their urine um, for any ketones okay during the day um, in order to make sure that they are um, that they're not spilling them Okay, and the patient needs to seek um, medical attention if their blood glucose remains elevated despite them um, taking their medications, if they're spilling ketones and they're present in the urine, if they have a fever for more than 24 hours, um, any vomiting, diarrhea, or inability to tolerate any liquids because then this is what's going to lead to the dehydration, which could lead to the complications or anytime they're, they're sick for more than two days. Okay. Um, and I think that's it. Any questions, let me know. Um, and, um, you guys will do great tomorrow.